confidence. When you have too little of it, you oftentimes are governed by fear and you never reach your maximum potential. When you have too much confidence, you tend to be chopped at the knees by pride. And so it's a really fine line in, bit in which we are to walk when it comes to confidence. And the Bible says, boast in the Lord. The Bible says, have your confidence in Christ. The Bible talks about walking by faith and not by sight. And yet with that, we are to have all the confidence in the Lord. And when it comes to self, we are to manage self because too much uh, feeling of our own good and too much boasting in ourself puffs us up and that makes us really invaluable toward the Lord and to be used by him. And so we are called to have confidence in God, but to walk that fine line. And it's been said, and you know the, the old saying, you give an inch and they will what? Take a mile. And God in our freedom through the gospel has given us an incredibly long rope called grace. And he gives us these liberties and he gives us these freedoms by which we can honor him. But we must be careful not to hang ourselves by that rope and also hogtie other people, stumbling them in our own liberties and our freedoms. And if you've been with us through First Corinthians, you know that we're in this section, chapters 8 through 10, that is dealing with a very specific subject. What is that subject? Anybody know? Christian what? Liberties and Christian freedoms. God says no and yes to a lot of things, and that's the black and white areas. But then you get into the gray zone where the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about certain aspects of our life. And in that, we have freedoms to do as we choose. But the Bible cautions us in chapter 8, we get, we get principles. One principle is if that freedom controls you and you can't seem to control it, what are we to do with that liberty? Let it go, right? We are subject to one master and that's not gambling or dancing or worldly entertainment or uh, alcohol consumption or any of these kind of gray area issues. We are to let those things go and we are to let love and consideration for our brothers and sisters in Christ guide our liberties. And so in chapter 8, we have the principles. And in chapter 9, we have the example. Now, who was our example? In chapter 9, who is our example? We'll try that again. Paul the apostle. And he says, basically, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you're, if you're doing what I'm doing, you're going to be right in the Lord's will. And so the apostle Paul is practicing what he preaches. He's talking the talk and he's walking the walk. And he says, look at my life and take it as an example. I am in my liberties, but I withhold my liberties if it causes other people to stumble. Chapter eight, verse 13. It hinders the gospel chapter 9, verse 12, or it disqualifies myself from ministry, chapter 9, verse 27. So look at the three spheres, self, others, and God. When it comes to those areas, we are to govern our liberties so we don't hinder any one of those specific areas. Now, Paul gives us the all-important, we saw it last week, the how-to message. We can know what to do, and we can know why we should do it, but if we don't know how to actually do it, it's nothing more than just a good plan on paper, right? We need to know how to actually execute and pull back on our freedoms for the sake of others. And so last week we saw it deals with self, self-awareness, self-discipline or self-denial, and then self-discipline. Paul knew that he was a father to these Corinthians, to this church. And as a role model and as a father figure, he was to be an example. And so he looked at the big picture and said, listen, I can do all things, but I forsake them for the sake of the gospel. Then he executes self-denial. And he says, I am going to be all things, to all men so that I may save some. So for the Jews, what did he do? He pulled back on his liberties and he submitted himself unto the Mosaic law. And he began to hold Sabbath again. And he began to go under the dietary laws. He wasn't eating a pork sandwich, you know, around his Jewish people. He went under the oaths and he went under all the rules and regulations of Judaism. 
He was showing us through self-denial, I'm going to pull back on my liberties so that I can reach this people group. Now, when it came to the Gentiles, he didn't make them do the Mosaic law. He went to them and he honored their conscience. So he says, if meat sacrificed to idols is going to cause my brother to sin, what did he say? I will no longer eat meat to stumble my brother. I will never eat meat again. And so he honored their self-conscience and he made sure that he didn't hurt other people. And when it came to the legalist Christians, also known as the weak brothers, those who don't realize their freedom in Christ, those who are still stuck on rules and regulations, he says, I'll honor their rules and regulations so that I can bless their name. Now that's self-awareness, then that's self-denial, but the last part is, I think, the most critical of all, self-control. See, you can't do something unless you have the discipline to execute. And so Paul says, I keep my eye on the prize. I'm not running with no purpose, and I bring my body unto subjection. In other words, my spirit is going to control my flesh. And I think even as Christians, sometimes our flesh dominates our spirit. So how do we walk or how do we walk in self-control? We saw last week by walking under the spirit, being led by the spirit, submitting to God and honoring him because the fruits of the spirit are what? Love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness. And what's the very last one? Self-control, discipline. God, as you honor him, gives you the discipline to be able to execute in all aspects of life. So chapter nine is the great how-to chapter, and it's the example to do. Now we get to chapter 10, and it's the what not to do example. So we can learn from people and their good behaviors, and then we can also learn from people and their bad behaviors, right? Experience is the greatest teacher on planet earth, but it doesn't have to be your experience. I can look at the life of David and say, I'm never going to commit adultery on my wife because I see David and his life before he saw Bathsheba on that rooftop was up here. And if you follow his trajectory of life, it just goes downhill when he commits adultery and he ultimately murders Uriah and all of that mess. His whole life goes down. Was he forgiven by God? Yes. Was he loved by God? Yes. Did God still use him? Absolutely. But his life went spiraling down because of the consequences he made. When I look at Solomon, and for you single people out there, there's a great lesson on not being married to somebody and being unequally yoked to an unbeliever. Solomon's life at the beginning was amazing. He walked with the Lord. He had the wisdom of the Lord. He had was the richest man on planet earth. He had it all, but he rejected God's command and he began to marry foreign women. And what did they do? They turned his heart towards their own gods and Solomon forsook the Lord and began to worship in idolatry. That's a good lesson for us that we aren't to be unequally yoked. When I look at the life of Judas, I understand that you cannot serve God and money. You got to choose one or the other. You cannot have two masters. When Remember, Mary was anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume. It was a year's wage. And what did he say? Anybody remember what Judas said? What a waste of money. You could have taken that and given to the poor. And what did John's little commentary said? It, it said that uh, John or Judas didn't care about the poor. He only cared about the money because he held the treasury box. He was a thief and he betrayed the Lord and he exchanged the savior for what? Silver. He changed uh, the savior in exchange for silver. And so I can look at that and say, okay, the love of money is the root of all forms of evil. I don't have to experience that to know that truth. I can see that example from others. Now in chapter 10, we're going to look at Israel and specifically they're wandering in the wilderness. And Paul draws out these incredible truths of what not to do. 
when it comes to having this amazing privilege with God and then forsaking that privilege just for the sake of overconfidence and liberty to do what I feel is right. And so originally this was a, a one uh, part message. I was going to do all 13 verses today, but it was like two, two and a half hours. And so I pulled back on my liberty to bless all of you. And so we're going to break this up into two parts. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're only going to do verses 1 through 5. But the section really runs through verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And there's a little outline if you're a note taker. Uh, the outline is the prophet of divine liberty. In these fir- first five verses, we see that as we've been set free, just like Israel was set free, it comes with these incredible benefits and these incredible blessings of being free in God. And we're going to see just like Israel, we experience the same freedom. Next week, we're going to look at the perversity of freedom if we allow it to go too far. So with that, let's read uh, verses 1 through 4c. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Now, Paul, whenever he uses this term, I don't want you to be unaware, he's basically saying this is common knowledge. This is something that you already ought to know. And he says it in chapter 12 when it comes to spiritual gifts. He's saying this ought to be known by you, but if not, I will repeat it or I will tell the story. And in this one, he's telling specifically about the liberation of Israel. Do you remember they were slaves in what country? Egypt, right? Pharaoh had his taskmasters over the Israelites, over the Hebrews, which the word Hebrew means to cross over. And so they were over the Hebrew people and they were causing incredible demands, right? And they were even saying, we want more quota. We want more quota. We need you to make more bricks with less materials. And so it got to the point where these masters were doing uh, unjustly to their slaves. And then it got leveled up even more. And Pharaoh commanded that the Egyptians do what to the firstborn males of the Hebrew people? Slaughter them. If, if a Hebrew woman was to give birth to a child and that child was to be a boy, that boy was to be executed. And they were really trying to kill off the, the Jewish or the Israelite line. And so, the cries and the sorrows and the pains of the Hebrew people reached the ears of God. And who did God send to deliver his people? Moses. And you remember Moses, he goes into Pharaoh and there are 10 plagues. And each of the plagues seems to get stronger and stronger and stronger until we get to the last plague. And which one was that? kill the firstborn male of all the Egyptians and all their livestock. So God, through Moses, tells the Israelites, take a lamb, that Passover lamb, kill it, put that blood on the house, and the angel of death will pass over your home, sparing your firstborn male. But anybody who does not have the blood of the lamb appropriated to them, they will lose their firstborn male. And so that night, the the angel of death passed over, and then you began to hear the weeping and the wailing of the Egyptians as they're waking up to see their firstborn kid murdered. And that was the final straw. Pharaoh calls in Moses. He says, you and your people get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want to see you ever again. And so Moses rounded up the troops, possibly a million to three million people is what the estimates are. And they rolled on out of town. And that is God liberating his people. That is God setting them free. Now, when you put that story and you carry it on over to the New Testament. 
You see Christ, our Passover. And who were we originally slaves to? Not the Egyptians, but what? To sin. And the wages of sin is death. That was our master. He was a cruel master. And you worked all your life and all he gave you as a paycheck was death. Death in relationship, death in body, and then ultimately that your last breath and then you hit the grave. Death. But Christ came and his blood set us free. And now sin has released us and death has passed over the Christian people. Now Paul talks about this liberation. And he talks about these five amazing aspects of being free. And the first one we see in verses uh, 1b is navigation. God set them free and then he led them. He actually led them to the land flowing with milk and honey. Paul writes and he says that our fathers were all under the cloud. And that's after the chains were broken. And now God is leading his people. So turn to your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus 13 verses 17 through 22. Exodus 13, 17. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. So who's leading the Israelites? God is, right? Through Moses and Aaron, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness, Who's leading the people? Yep, God is leading the people through Moses. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array around the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out to Succoth and came to Etham, On the edge of the wilderness and the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. Who's leading the people? The Lord, right? God is doing it in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that might that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So the people are liberated and then they're led out. God didn't just break off the shackles and say, okay, now you go figure things out on your own. Now you go out and try to, you know, make something of yourself. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and be something. God actually led his people and he led them like a good shepherd. What does Psalm 23 say? He makes me lie down besides green pastures and besides still waters. The Lord is always taking care of his people, navigating them, leading them, bringing them forward, pushing them, kind of trying to get them on the right path. God did that for Israel and God does that for his church. I will never leave you, the Bible says. I will never forsake you. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. We've been liberated just like Israel and we are being led just like Israel. God doesn't just leave us to our own devices. He makes sure that we have a plan and someone leading us primarily himself in the right way. So we go from navigation to the second aspect of our liberty, and that's provision. Paul says in verse 2, or verse 1c, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, what sea is is he referring to specifically? The Red Sea. You remember Pharaoh, he had let the people go and then he's sitting there. So the one of the psychologists tell us our first emotion is typically pain and sorrow. And then through that pain and sorrow, there's secondary emotions. And one of those secondary emotions is anger. 
So there, a Pharaoh is mourning his son and the entire community is mourning their firstborn who has been dead and they began to get angry. Who are these people who take all our good things and then they kill our firstborn and now they're set free? Let's go and get them back. So what does Pharaoh do? He gets his entire military and he says, we are going after them. And so they begin to chase them down. Now the Israelites, they have old people there and then they have infants in their crowd. So they're not moving at a very, you know, fast rate. They're slowly going to the land that God is calling them. The military of the Egyptians, however, are flying on chariots. I mean, these guys are really getting after it and they're covering ground. And so the, the Jewish people, they get to a place where they're wedged in a valley. There's mountains on either side. There's the Red Sea in front of them. And at their six is the Egyptian military. And they have absolutely at this time no place to go. And so we pick up in Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 13. Exodus 14, starting at verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Notice the Lord protecting his people. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave a light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters divided and the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariots to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned in its normal state at daybreak. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God liberated the Israelites He led the Israelites, and then he protected the Israelites. When it comes to Christians, God liberated us, the Lord leads us, and the Lord protects us. Jesus says this, whom the Father gives to me. And who wants to finish that verse? Does anybody know it? I will lose none. What do you think that means? As God has called you to salvation and he's elected you and and called you his child and placed you as a kingdom citizen, how many people get lost? None. You are given into the protection of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may jump from knuckle to knuckle in disobedience, but you never get away from God's hand. He's protected you and he's got you until the very end. And that's why the Bible says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, what's the last part of our salvation? He glorified which means whom God foreloved before the foundations of the earth, that same people go all the way into glory. That's why the, the, the hymn writers, they would talk about our blessed assurance, that we have assurance and insurance in the Lord. He protects us every step of the way so that we will never be lost. Just like Israel. Now look at verse two. Going back to our text. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now when you think of baptism, what is immediately pops into your head? Water, right? But this is a cloud that's not a rain cloud. And how did the Israelites pass on the sea? dry land. This is not necessarily talking about water baptism. Baptism just means to be immersed or to be completely consumed by. And really it comes down to identity. So you've heard this phrase, oh, I've been baptized with fire. Maybe you start a new job and they just throw you right on in there, right? And I'm baptized by fire. It means I'm immersed in it. John the Baptist, what did he baptize with? What was his baptism called? The baptism of, it starts with an R. Starts with re, ends with repentance. (laughs) Repentance, right? It was a baptism of repentance. And that was the idea that these people were to submerge, be completely identified in a changed life. The Israelites were baptized into Moses, meaning their identity was found directly in Moses. Now, what is Moses notorious for? When you look at the Old Testament, he's known as Holy Moses, but he was also the one who did something very special for the Jewish people. The deliverer of the law. And what Paul is saying is the Israelites, their identity was in Moses through the delivering of God's law. Now, what did the law do? We kind of touched on it the last couple weeks. What is the, what does the law do? Okay, it condemns us. That's the, the end result. But what was the law given for? What is the purpose? Why did God say, I'm giving my law? It was to reveal sin, but it was to separate, right? Israel from the rest of the world. You remember the moral law and the dietary laws and all the customs. It meant that they couldn't be with the Gentile people. It's also called the holy law, 
which means they were to be separatists. They were to be separated from the rest of the world. Israel was a unique people, unlike everybody else in the world, because they had been separated unto God and made holy. When you think of the Gentile world, the Bible describes them as lost, in darkness. They are wandering without a purpose. They eat, they drink, and they be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's the YOLO mentality. You only live once, so let's just do whatever you want. There is a futile purpose behind the world's philosophies. It's very temporary. A 100,000 years from now, does it matter how much money you made? Or how many friends you have? Or how many memories you've created? None of that matters. But the Gentile world focuses in on those temporary things. God gave Israel a purpose, the big picture, to be cleaved and separated and holy unto him. They had been baptized into Moses. Now, as Christians, when we're saved and we say, I do to Jesus, God spiritually baptizes us into Christ. He places us in Christ. And now our identity is no longer an American or it's no longer a Mexican, or it's no longer a doctor, who and what is our identity? Christ. We are now called what? Christians. That's our new identity. And then we go through water baptism, and we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's your new identity. You are baptized into their life, into their characteristic, into their being, and now you are one with them. So in that liberty, God leads, God then protects, and then God gives a new identity. To Israel, it was Moses and the law. To Christians, it's Christ being placed into him. Now, look at the next part. We go from identification to provision. Verse 4 or verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. So imagine you're, you're walking in the wilderness and the average person, let's say, eats three times a day. Three times a day times 365 days a year times 40 years wandering in the wilderness comes out to 43,800 meals for every single person. 43,800 meals. Now multiply that by a million to three million people. And you can see the amount of food that needs to be made so that these people can sustain life. Who fed the people in Israel in that wandering wilderness? God did. They didn't have agriculture. They weren't plowing the fields. They weren't doing any of that. God did it all. Turn to Exodus Chapter 16 and verses 1 through 5. Exodus 16, verses 1 through 5. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. What happened on Sinai? The law of God came down, right? And on the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So God fed them with bread, first bread, right? Called manna. And that's Hebrew for what is this? They looked at this bread and was like, it's falling from the sky. It's like the, the dew here on the ground, but it's edible bread. What is this? And so they called it manna and they began to eat. 
But what happened? They got tired of the bread, right? And rightfully so. If you eat bread all day, every day, and that's all you're eating, you can prepare it a hundred different ways and you'll probably get bored of it. So they said, we want meat, right? Now store that in the back of your mind because that's very important for where Paul's going. Bread and flesh, bread and flesh. Just kind of store that in the back of your mind. So look at now verse eight, chapter 16 and verse eight. Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. And the Lord hears your grumbles, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord. And he has heard your grumblings. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in it in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard of the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying at twilight, you shall eat meat in the morning and you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord. And verse 13, and so it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. So God gave them bread and God gave them meat to sustain their needs. Now, when it comes to Christians, does God sustain us? Does God provide for us? Jesus said this, he said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things are added to you. What is that added to you? What are the things Jesus specifically spoke of? No, it was very specific in that text. Don't worry about what you will eat, drink, wear, or shelter. You seek God and his kingdom and all of those other things will be added unto you. Jesus is laying precedent that God will always take care of his people. Now, how many people have been walking with the Lord more than, let's say, 10 years? Anybody? Are relationships longer than 10 years with God? Okay. Has God ever allowed you to go starving to the point where you become destitute? Never. You are a living testimony that God provides. Now, it may not have always been easy. You may have had to walk by faith. You may not have known where your next meal will come from, but God will always provide. I remember one time working at the school district, and I remember specifically me and my dad were broke as a joke. We literally had no food in the house. And when I mean no food, it's not just things we didn't want to eat. We literally had nothing. We had a little bit of olive oil and that was it. We, we were broke, broke, broke. And I remember going into the, the cafeteria and the, the woman uh, that worked there, the new aid lady, she says, hey, are you hungry? I was like, yeah. She goes, here's an entire bag of food. We're going to throw it away, but I'd rather not. Oh my goodness. I looked at there was pizzas and burritos and chicken and I couldn't believe it. And I literally drove into work saying, God, I don't know what we're going to eat. We don't have any, I don't have any food or money for lunch. And my dad has nothing to eat at home. I don't know what you're going to do. Within 20 minutes, that happened. And it was just that reassurance that God is always with you. And he always provides for his people no matter what. He did that with Israel and he does that with the church. He does that in your life. Now, notice what Paul says going back to 1 Corinthians 10. And this is the last part. We go from navigation, provision, identification, protection. Here's the last part, union. Look at verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Now, it's one thing to have food, and you can last maybe a week, two weeks, maybe even three weeks or a month without food, but you can't go very long without water. And when you have about a million plus people wandering in a desert, you can imagine with livestock that they can go through some water pretty quickly. And so look at Exodus chapter 17, 
Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7. And this is God providing the water for his people Israel. And it has a bigger implication with his union with them. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, saying, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do to these people? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Remember I said file away the the bread and the flesh? File away this part too, that staff that struck the Nile. Just kind of put that way in, in the back of your memory. We'll go back to that. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at, at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So Horeb is a part of a little mountain chain, and the, the peak summit is called Mount Sinai, which is what happens at Mount Sinai. The law comes down, right? And Horeb means a glowing heat. And so it's a place in the desert where it's really hot. And so the people complained about water. And what was the Lord's solution? Take that staff that struck the Nile and do what with that staff? Strike that rock, hit the rock, and water will come out and they will have that living water. Now look at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. And this is another situation now where the children of Israel are thirsty in their wandering wilderness. It's different from Exodus 17. This again is the second time in which they had no water to the point that they nearly died. Exodus 20, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin. The first one was Sin. Now this is the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. And the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die there? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. And then Moses and Aaron came in the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take that rod. Remember, what did that rod strike? And before that, the Nile. Good, we, we filed that away. Take that rock, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and what's the command? Speak to the rock. That's different from striking the rock, right? So something is obviously going on here. Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water from out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water from the from you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck 
the rock twice with his rod and water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses, Mo, step into my office. (laughs) Moses and Aaron, because you have not, and what's the word? Believed. Here we have an aspect of faith. Because you have not believed in me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Forty years he worked to go into the land, and in one action, the consequence was you will never go there yourself. You'll be able to see it from a distance, but you will never go there Why was God so strict? Turn back to 1 Corinthians 10. And now that's the milk of the word. If we close our sermon there, there's there's enough there to hold on to. But Paul, when he wrote these verses, was writing with the meat of the word. And these verses have way more profoundness to them. Look at the word. What's the adjective in verse 3 and the adjective in verse 4? that describe food and drink. Spiritual food and spiritual drink. What in the world is that referring to? Look at the last part of chapter 4 or verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is an interesting footnote because it tells us two things about Jesus. One, he was alive and well before his incarnation, which means he is one eternal. Jesus wasn't born the babe of Bethlehem, and that was his his start. Jesus always was, and he was there from the beginning. He was there in the garden. He was there in Abraham's time. Jesus said, uh, in Abraham's day, he was rejoicing when he saw me. He was there even during the wandering wilderness. And we know that because we spent an entire year, right, in Jesus in the Old Testament. And we showed that he wasn't an afterthought, that the Lord was there at all times. It also tells us that Jesus is God. When the Bible in the Old Testament refers to the rock, it always refers to God and salvation. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15, it says, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are, you are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Kind of referring to me a little bit, but <laughs> then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. And Psalm chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, this is a psalm of David. And David wrote, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. When Paul is saying Christ is the rock, he's also saying that Christ is God. Now, going back to our text in Exodus, the very first time God said to Moses, take your rod, which you struck the Nile with. What happened during that plague? Water turned to blood. That's a very important aspect to what Paul is about to bring into this whole thing. Water turns to blood. And then he commands Moses, go to the rock and first time strike it and out will come water. Now, if Christ is the rock, what is the striking? The cross. And what came from the cross. The Passover lamb's what? Blood. And through his blood, we are saved. Remember the Roman soldier, he pierced the Lord's side and out came water and blood. 
Christ is that rock and he was to be struck once for all people. One time crucified for all people and that blood atoning for that one crucifixion. And then they wanted that living water again. And what did God say to Moses? Don't strike the rock. What do you do? Speak to the rock. Now, here's the interesting thing in our verses in verses one through five. What are the two Christian rites? Now, rites are R-I-T-E-S, like religious ceremonies. There are two that the Bible commands us to do. We don't go and sacrifice little lambs anymore. We don't go to the temple and do all of the, the temple worship. There are two religious rites. What are they? Baptism and communion. Paul is tying Moses' baptism or that identification and where the Jews got it wrong both in Israel wandering and at the time of Christ is they attributed the deliverance and the law to who? Say it. To Moses. Who was the one that delivered God's people and sustained God's people and actually was the lawgiver? God did it. Where did the Jews find their error? They attributed it to holy Moses. Now we come into the second rite, which is communion. Paul talks about the spiritual food, which is the bread and flesh, and that spiritual water, which is water turned to blood. And that is dealing specifically with this area of communion. Now turn to John chapter 6, and Jesus says pretty much that same thing. John chapter 6, starting at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that they that we may see you and believe? What work do you do? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not who? Moses, who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. What they were doing was this. They attributed all of this liberation to a man. And they were not attributing it to the God that sent that man. They had completely whiffed on what the Lord had done. They were in major error. And you know where else they whiffed? When it came to the person of Jesus Christ. When it came to the food in the wilderness, what did the people do? They grumbled. We're tired of this bread. So God gave them meat. And then they got tired of that too. When God gave them that spiritual water, what did they do? They grumbled and they wanted more. When Christ came in the flesh, what did the Israelites, the Jewish people do? Predominantly, did they receive him or reject him? They absolutely rejected him. Now, look at verse uh, 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you this bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Did Jesus say anything? Was this talking anything about that spiritual water? No. Jesus is tying those elements of communion or his sacrifice directly to himself. And verse 36, but I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. There's that aspect of protection. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that whom the Father has given me, I will lose nothing 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will enter, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh." And the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will give him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I will live because of the Father. So he who eats me also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever." So what is Paul doing when he when he comes into verses 1 through 5? Going back to our text, and we're almost done, verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. What did they not do? They did not have faith, and they did not trust in God's provision, primarily the Lord. Christ comes into the world, and what does Israel do? They do not believe, and they do not have faith, primarily in who? In the Lord. Now, here's the kicker. Baptism and communion are the two Christian rites. What were the two Christian rites that the the church at Corinth were absolutely blowing? They whiffed on both of these things baptism and communion. Paul, and we're going to see next week, is tying the same sins that the Corinthians are experiencing with that of Israel. They're in the same situation. Turn to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1, 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For if, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. What was the Corinthians' error? They were finding their identity in whom? Their leaders. Some were saying, oh, I'm saved because of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm saved because of Peter. Others were saying, I'm saved because of Paul. Others say Christ. What were the Israelites doing? They were baptized into Moses, and they said, we are saved because of holy Moses, when in reality it was God who did it. What were the Corinthians doing? We're saved because of Apollos, because of Paul, because of Cephas. Who really did the saving? Christ. Christ did it. They were following in the same error. Now look at chapter 11, and we'll close with this. 
chapter 11 and verse 20. Paul is now calling out their second religious rite, which is communion, and they had it completely backwards. Verse 20, chapter 11. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for you in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks and eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, and that is die. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, and that's the idea of communion, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. They messed up baptism and they messed up communion in the exact same way the Israelites had messed up the identification and the union with their God. Now, in closing, it comes back to us. How does this apply to us? And we have to ask ourselves two important questions. Number one, what is my identity? If someone were to follow you for one month and you didn't know they were there, they just followed your every move and they saw every text and they saw every website and they saw every action that you did, would they come to the conclusion that you are a Christian? Would they come to the conclusion that your identity is in Christ? Because you've been placed into Christ. So one, am I identifying in a nation or am I identifying in a group or a race or a hobby or in sin or is my identification solely in the Lord? That's very important. Israel whiffed on this. The Corinthian church whiffed on this. I pray that journey doesn't whiff on this. Is my identification that of Christ or anything else? And then number two, my union in communion. In other words, not who I am, but what I do. Are my actions validating what my lips are saying? I'm a Christian. Are my actions validating that truth? Am I truly walking in union with the Lord or am I just deceiving myself? And the Bible warns to examine ourselves. Faith without works is dead. Examine ourselves lest we be deceived ourselves. So who am I? Am I a Christian? And if so, am I actually living the life? Walk in the walk and talk in the talk. Amen? Amen. All right. With that, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your incredible truth, Lord God. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We thank you, God, for your kindness. We thank you, God, that we have so many examples from the scripture that we can know what to do and we can know what not to do. And Lord God, the people in, in ancient Israel wandering in the wilderness, they lacked faith. 
and they disregarded your sacrifice and your provision. And God, when Christ came into the world, the house of Israel, by and large, lacked faith. And they disregarded your sacrifice, your son on the cross. And even in the church here in America, oftentimes we lack faith. And Lord, we disregard your son and what he's done for us in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be thankful for the blessings of our divine liberty, that you have led us, that you've protected us, that you've given us a new identification, that you've given us provision, and Lord God, you've given us union in Christ. But may we never forget the cross, and may we never forget what God has done for us, so that we live the life being crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live for the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. And that's our call, Father. And so, Lord, I just lift this congregation to you. I lift myself up to you, Lord God, and I pray, God, that we would be a blessing to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.